0: You're listening to the City Lights Sermon Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. Neighbor, the way that God talked about it in the Old Testament and the New Testament wasn't about uh, geography or a place that you live. Neighbor had to do with the perspective in which you looked at those around you. Uh, neighbor isn't just a New Testament concept; it's an Old Testament. It's part of the Shema, the very two highest commandments in all of God's heart: is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor is a big deal, and and Jesus, not just because he was prophetic, not just because he was omniscient, not just because he was God, never met a stranger. The love inside of him was too strong, too too powerful, too compassionate, too caring. To allow for the walls of anonymity to exist in his mind. He never looked at anybody neutrally. He never looked at anybody ambivalently. He never looked at anybody without care. Everyone he met was a neighbor to him, was someone who was um, worth the death of Jesus, was worth the, the love of the Father. That's the way that, that Jesus lived. And so the, 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 the kind of concept or the quote that we'll work on this morning is that My Neighbor Sunday is a time that City Lights celebrates our identity as neighbors in Greenville, meaning we're not waiting to move anywhere to become a neighbor because in following Jesus, we are neighbors wherever we are. And, and everywhere God goes, he never found strangers, and therefore, because the love of God compels us, because the Holy Spirit is greater in us than in the world, that everywhere we go, we don't meet strangers. We don't meet people that are just in our way. We don't meet people that we're not responsible to. We don't meet people that are just... Um, People that we, we're going to move on past with small talk. Every single person that we meet is needing mercy. And because we are recipients of great mercy, we're also distributors of great, great mercy as well. So everywhere we go, we're neighbors. It is who we are. The term um, never met a stranger, I believe, was, was written about my dad, Cam Chao Wong himself. Um, my dad never met a stranger. My dad talks to, to everybody it's the most annoying thing. We would go over the years to like McDonald's or the dry cleaners or the Chinese takeout place. And I'm just thinking, just don't, do not, just whatever you do, whoever this person is at the cashier, do not give this guy a window because if you give this guy a door, a foothold, he will put his foot through that door. He will start talking to you. Just don't, don't talk about it. Don't have a weird mustache. Don't have an accent. Don't have like, don't bring up the, the weather because he's going to take it and he's going to take it too far. He's going to talk to you. you're already done talking, and then maybe he'll talk a little bit more, and then maybe he'll be done talking to you, because he's going to talk to you. He doesn't know a stranger. Uh, He was visiting us a couple months ago, and we were at a Publix, and we walked by these two guys Uh, Prime targets for Cam. Uh, Two guys in the Jersey Shore, kind of wife-beater with the gold chains. Uh, Two guys hanging out in the Publix parking lot, don't know what they're doing. They're outside a Kia Sorento, just like a little Kia uh, car, and they're having a tailgate, but there's no football game, and they're just hanging out talking. And I'm about 10 paces ahead of my dad, and I'm walking by, and I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. So Cam rolls out of the car. He's got that old man, kind of like got to loosen himself up just to walk into the Publix and uh, the windbreakers on, the straight Ace Ventura like flower print with like the t-shirt hanging out. He's making sure he's looking right. He's just making sure he's looking right. So he's, he's walking and I walk past these guys. I'm thinking, oh, this is not gonna be good. I speed up so that I don't, I don't want any part of this. I speed up and just as my dad walks p- past them, I hear him say in his thick Chinese accent, he says, nice Lamborghini. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, I'm in the parking lot waiting for him to get done. I mean, he's just talking. I mean, I remember this one time we, we, roll, we, uh, we got sitting in the Burger King uh, playland with some kids and whatever, and he's talking to this poor woman who's just got this bandage all over her face. And I, I'm, this is not a joke. I could not have made this up, Stephen Lewis, uh, our, res, our lawyer, resident lawyer guy. This lady was trying to figure out her lawsuit because literally she was at Kmart and a sign with a price fell on her nose fell right on the bridge of her nose, and my dad said, it looked like prices that came out really falling. I'm dead serious, I couldn't make it up. This is literally what happened in my life. Like all sorts of great things can happen. I remember he stopped in the middle of a busy Hong Kong street and had like 50 cars piled up behind him to like go and push this little Asian lady's cart to the market. My dad lived a life really with no strangers in it. And you maybe know somebody like this, but my dad taught me by way of his just life is that really every stranger is just one conversation away from being a neighbor. That people aren't as scary as that you think that they are, that people are in more need than you think that they are, that they're not as independent and sufficient as you think that they are, and everyone needs mercy. Everyone is in need of compassion. Everyone needs love. Everyone is in deficit. Nobody ever says to you, I have, I have enough love uh, and care in my life. So this expert in the law, he comes to Jesus one time, and he asks him this question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit the life I long for? And, um, and we're all uh, experts in the law as we read this scripture to one degree and another. Um, in the way that um, expert uh, in the law just basically means what we do to figure out how we can find life. We're experts in the law either of cleanliness or experts in the law of punctuality or experts in the law of creativity or experts in the law of music or experts in the law of sports. I mean, we're experts in the thing that... Um, we, we find life in, that we find meaning in, that we find passion in. And uh, we, 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 we push for expertise in these places in a way because we think we may find God there in some ways. And we want to we know, we, we we're curious. We become students of the things we're passionate about because we, we know that there's something missing and we long to live this life that we're empty for. And we lean into these places and spaces in our life in the hope that we're going to find it. And so he asked this question, how do I get to this life? Tell me the list. Tell me the rules. Tell me the checkboxes. Tell me the practicums. Tell me the steps. And I think what's missing And what's assumed in the heart of the expert of law and the heart of the experts of the law in our hearts is this misconception that life can be reached through right living rather than being reached through right relationship with others. The legalist in all of us, the one that wants the rule book, the one that wants the check boxes to fulfill when you wake up in the morning so at the end of the day when you go to bed at night, these are the things that I can do that I can be guaranteed that life will be on the other side. We wanna know what those things are and whether they're written or not, we have our value set politically or socially or economically or financially written around what it is we think we're gonna find life in. And I think as we look at the scripture, we're gonna recognize that that the righteousness that we seek to be right standing, to be upright, to do the things that we're supposed to be doing to reach the life we've always wanted. um, Jesus teaches it's not so much about the standard he doesn't teach, uh, it's not so much about the standard of right living or, or, or doing things the right way, but rather the seeking of right relationship. And so the lawyer in us and in the, in the legalist in the, in the Testament here is looking for the rules for love um, as a virtue rather than with relationship. How can, I, how can I love in a way that there's a list? How can I love that there's a limit? How can I love and find that there might be a loophole? And Jesus says, There is no limit, there is no loophole, There's there's only love. There's only the desire to move towards people and towards God, and that is the only command that you can follow out of the 613 is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 26, the conversation continues. What is written in the law, Jesus asks him. And the guy gives him the right answer. He uses the word love, but I would probably argue that the way he uses love, the dictionary he uses to define love, is different than the dictionary God would use. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it all right. You answered correctly. But he, he leaves that hook out for the guy to, to kind of catch on, because he knows that the answer that Jesus has given him so far doesn't satisfy the need that, that's within him. And then we see the motive behind the question is not to love to love people, but to, to seek right standing with God, to get the life he always wanted, potentially without people, without having the pull of relationship. He wants the lists and the limit rather than the, the unlimitedness of love with others. And so it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Give me clarity, give me a limit, give me a boundary, give me a checklist for what love would actually mean. And so we see the expert in the law and the expert's Of all laws in our heart define love as moving towards a standard, but Jesus defines love as moving towards God and people. This is the verse that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a central premise to what it means to love in the kingdom of God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You'll find it in Hosea and other prophecies in the Old Testament, as well as in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus says, and really, God, Father, Spirit, all, um, all of God's heart and all of uh, time has said this statement, I desire, this thing, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So God says there's two things that exist in the human heart and that can compel love, and one is called sacrifice and one is called mercy, and, and God says, I choose mercy more than sacrifice. In a way, what God is saying is that you can love with your hands uh, sacrificially, but mercy has to start with your heart. Romans says that love must be sincere, that the sacrificial love at the end of the year in terms of giving or tax deduction or, or, or just kind of going through the motions to make sure that we check the boxes of loving our neighbor to kind of go on the mission trip or whatever it is would be a start and would be a sacrifice of love, but real mercy, the mercy that turns strangers into neighbors, the mercy that brings the kingdom in our presence, the mercy that actually motivates us and moves us towards the life that we are asking about when we have conversations with Jesus like this, that mercy has to be in our heart, not just in our hands. I desire mercy. Mercy, not sacrifice. I desire compassion, not work. I desire a, a love and a, and, a, and a heart that loves that is true, that is pure. And so maybe a question for us as we kind of close reflectively at the end of the year to think about um, where our heart is on its journey towards hopefully family, not away, towards our neighbors, not running away, towards the nations, not leaving them behind. As we love our family, neighbors, and nations, is our love sacrifice or is it mercy? Do we love because it's the right thing to do? Because because it would be awkward if we didn't? Do we love because it's politically correct? Do we love because um, it would make us feel better? Do we love because uh, we want to be seen as virtuous? Do we love because um, we don't know what else to do and that's what we've been taught to do? Do we love because it's the right thing to do or we love because we are motivated by right relationship with God and others? Is love the means or the end? Is love or sacrifice? Is sacrifice the point or is love the point in our actions? It's a question I think will always be confronting us in good and kind ways. So the conversation continues in reply. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was there, there he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him for half dead. Jesus uh, talks about a journey that goes from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, which was an eighteen-year, jir- eighteen-month journey. Um, excuse me, an eighteen-mile journey, which was uh, culturally known as utterly perilous. Um, the rain that fell on this path made it very undependable. Um, some of the, the the turns and the kind of um, Barriers and mountains and passages on the path made it very secret that attracted a lot of robbery and a lot of attacks and killings and murders. It was actually known, uh, some of the part of the journey, as the ascent of blood or the red path because of how much murder and burglary and robbery happened on this. And I don't think that Jesus brought this analogy to bear on accident. I think he is doing it on purpose. Jesus sees the road from Jerusalem to Jericho as perilous because he sees the world and the journey of life as dangerous and perilous. And as we drive up and down the city streets of our neighborhood, or walk down the halls of the mall, or go downtown on Main Street, there is an illusion of confidence and prosperity. The outside of our homes and our public buildings, they communicate prosperity, safety, and sufficiency, lulling our neighborhood instinct to sleep. But we know statistically and experientially that behind the doors, just behind the curtains of the statistics, and just behind the curtains of these homes, our experiences remind us that our neighborhoods are full of loneliness and hopelessness and brokenness in the United States of America, the most prosperous nation in the world. We know statistically, but by the age of 18, half of the females in America will be sexually abused by the time that they're 18, and twenty five percent of young men, not poor, just in broken dis, you know disprivileged places in America, in the suburbs of America, half of our women will be sexually abused by the time they reach eighteen and none of our suburbs aesthetically show that none of our buildings and our and our in and our engineering and our in our Development of Greenville, communicate that message, but yet still that is the message. Spend time as a public school teacher for any amount of time, and you'll find out what goes on inside of those homes. Pull up your chair to anybody in your work and have one conversation with them, rich, poor, or anywhere in the middle, and find out that is not the real narrative that's happening in and around our cities. It's the illusion of prosperity and confidence. The switch people. That the, the, the group of uh, ladies that went from City Lights to go and support the switch ministry, which aims to rescue those that are sex trafficked here in our city, in our city. The girl that shared her story started in a dorm room. I mean, we're not talking about in some underprivileged area. We're talking about in what's supposed to be safe America, quote unquote. He didn't pick Jericho on accident. Our world and our neighborhoods need Mercy. The dads and the moms that live next to you, I, I know they look great. I know that they are well-dressed. I know that they, they seemed esteemed in their worlds and in their, in their areas of influence, but they need mercy. The children that you pass, there's no child that you're passing today, tomorrow, or this week that is not in desperate need of the hand of kindness of mercy from you. And this is the illusion that we have drummed up, that we are independent people, not needing mercy. And the social media that we scroll through has filters that communicate a non-need or or an independence or autonomy that doesn't need mercy. But the reality is is that our world is, is desperately in need of mercy. Jesus picked Jericho as an analogy because it's an apt analogy for our world. The world is in desperate need of mercy. So verse 30 says, Along the road, um, this man is robbed. He's attacked um, by weapon and by force. And and so in this world, there are three different characters from Jerusalem to Jericho or in the path of life. There are three different characters of people that we we encounter um, in our everyday life from suburbia to urban to country. There's three different kinds of people because there's three different paradigms that we would look at the world. The first we encountered on the path of Jericho is the robber. And the robber believes that God doesn't just help those that help themselves. God doesn't help anybody. The robber believes that there isn't enough, that scarcity is the law of economics, both in terms of emotion and in terms of money. And so what's what's yours is what you've taken, and might is right. And so the robber lives life knowing that if I don't take this now, somebody else will take it from me. And so there, there is no real ownership other than... Might, other than strength, other than taking. And so the robber believes what's, what's yours is mine. This is fundamentally what the robber believes. And there's some of that in us, I suppose. Maybe not completely in this room to the highest degree. But we encounter a world oftentimes that is brutal, that is bullying, that only uh, holds accountable to what it's accountable to, that doesn't act on its own moral compass. And it will take from you. They'll say to you, what's yours is mine. This is the fundamental ideal of what the robber is. But then the story continues, there's another two characters, which represent another thinking process that oftentimes I think I would subscribe to more than the other two, and that is that they uh, the robbers had stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, and leaving him half dead, he encounters two people, number one, a priest, who happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed to the other side. The scriptures in Leviticus would say if a priest were to touch an un- unclean man, or if there was blood on his collar, and there was... Um, there was um, a, a transmission there of that kind of fluid that would make them unclean. And so the priest, taking care of his own interests, crossed to the other side of the path rather than um, take, make use of his day for compassion. And so too, the Levite, another name for an expert of the law, uh, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side as well. So whereas the robber believes what's yours is mine, the, the legalist sees things by way of justice without mercy. And God helps those, but those who help themselves. So the legalists would believe that what's yours is yours, but what's mine is mine. And so you can keep yours, and I'll keep mine. The world is not in need. Mercy is not the highest value. Justice is the highest value. And so what's yours is yours, and what's mine is mine. And so you stay on your side of the street, and I'll stay on my side of the street. And you stay in your business, and I'll stay in my business. And because God helps those that help themselves, if we help ourselves, we will be helped. what we forget is that God is helping everybody, especially those that can't help themselves. And oftentimes he uses people to help people that need help. And so the story that was shared last night by a woman named Rebecca Bender, who's bravely shared her testimony at the Switch Gala, as I said, did not start in in a ghetto. It didn't start in a project. It started in a normal dorm room of a girl who just needed to know she was loved. She just didn't receive that fully from her parents and from her upbringing. She didn't know who she was. She was was vulnerable because she had that gap in her life. And so she got pregnant earlier than she wanted to in college. And now her vulnerability grew and her ability to, to be hurt and injured by robbers and wolves and thieves in this world, as John 10 teaches us about got wider, the window got wider, and as you know, wolves look for windows like that. They know. And the experts will call that grooming. And so some guy who was not of her best interest and had all kinds of ulterior motives, part of a trafficking network, actually, out of one of the cities nearby, targeted her. And targeted her for years. I mean, didn't just, like, swipe her into a van Took her to dinner, cared for her child, loved her, supported her, talked about future marriage with her, moved her out of the city into another city. It was convicting to me to hear that story because I thought to myself, how much more effort would a, would a wolf in sheep's clothing dedicate to reach a lost person? How much more effort would they, would they reach out to than the church of God would reach out to somebody? The wolves in this world will stop for the one better than the church will. Because we'll think, well, I mean, you know where we are. You can call us. We're Sunday at 10. Come on out. Just hang out with us. If you don't like it, it's the last time I'll see you. So that's not not how the wolves have operated. I mean, they're talking about years of false motives and false pretenses and grooming and taking this girl... And, and she didn't realize along the way all the doors that were getting shut off in her life. And she said, it wasn't just A to Z. It was A to B to C to D to E until how did I get here? How did I end up here is how this happens. And, and she said all along the way, she said there were people, there were people that could have leaned in and become an advocate. They could have reached out. There were people that could have warned me and stopped me, but they tended to not reach out because they didn't want to be nosy neighbors because they lived in a world of what's yours and yours and what's mine is mine. And it's not my business to to impose on your independence. It's not my business to impose on your needs. It's not my business to get to know you. You're a stranger and I'm a stranger and so my neighbors are the people that live next to me, not the people that I'm around, not the people where mercy is present. And so what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine allowed for this woman to be victimized and her child to be victimized. This is not the way that Jesus is. This is not the way that Jesus teaches us to be neighbors. In fact, as we read in verse 33, it's impossible to read about the Good Samaritan without seeing the Good Samaritan himself is Jesus himself. The Good Samaritan, it says in the narrative, he travels, he came to where the man was, did not cross to the other side, stopped his time, was available, and took pity on him rather than pride. And he said, what's mine I give up and lay down for you. What's mine is not mine. What's mine is actually yours because everything is a gift. God is a giver. There is no uh, scarcity in the world because my king owns it all. And so everything I have to you, I give it freely to you. This is the heart of the neighbor. It says he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil, which represents the Holy Spirit on this man, and wine, which represents the blood of Jesus. And he put this man on his own donkey, placing the man where he was seated. He, was, he lowered himself to where the man was seated so that, where am I going here? So that the man could be seated where Jesus was seated, on the donkey. And the next day he took out two denarii worth two days worth of wages and gave him to the innkeeper, look after him. And this is maybe where our character is, more even so than the Samaritan, look after him as the innkeeper. And when I return, I will reimburse you for every expense you have. This is the sermon in a sentence today. As followers of Jesus, we only meet neighbors. We don't know strangers. Stranger means I'm not responsible to you. Stranger means you take care of you and I'll take care of me. Stranger means I don't know you, I don't trust you. Stranger means I'm not responsible to you. Stranger means I don't owe you anything. Stranger means I'm I'm gonna do me and you can go ahead and you can do you. And as we follow Jesus, we realize he's never introducing us to any strangers. There's only neighbors. There's only neighbors. There's only neighbors because the love of God has never met a stranger. The love of God has never looked at anybody and thought too far, too hard, too messed up, too rude, unreachable, not worth it. Not worth my time. The love of God has never said that. The heart of God has never said that. Every person we'll we'll talk to who is in deep need of mercy is worth the death of Jesus. And we cannot fall for the myth of independence and self-security and what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine because everyone that we'll see is in deep need of mercy. Everyone we see is needing the mercy of Jesus. And we can't fall for the the, 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 the lie of prosperity in the area, the era of, of, uh, of wealth and self-sufficiency, we are always on the road to Jericho. We never find ourselves anywhere else, and so therefore we are always meeting strangers who are being introduced to, to neighboring. So which of these, he says, do you think was a neighbor to the man that fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in law says the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus said, go and do Likewise. Just three sum-ups uh, sum here, and we'll have the band after that. But three questions that we ask ourselves as neighbors every day, very simple questions. I'm not even going to walk through them one by one. Who, is, who are the people around me? Number one, what are the needs around me? And number three, how can I be available for the needs around me? In fact, probably the most strategic thing that we can do to be good neighbors to those that are around us that never find strangers is not be so busy. To practice the practice of being available is probably the very first step we can do to be available to our neighbors. But the second thing we can do is identify not only stories and the names of those around them to move them from ambivalence to acquaintance to acquaintance to friendship, but we can be aware of the needs that each one has and be available to those needs. This is the second command. It's the first command, is the love of your God, and this is the very second most important thing. It seems to be that we would make an agenda out of this thing. We would prioritize this thing that we would be available for the needs that come across our path. And oftentimes, as we looked at the story of Rebecca, it's moving towards conflict and moving towards harm. I was so proud of my daughter, Rose. I'm calling her out, and she's going to be upset because I'm telling her story. But one of these girls that was on this group chat that was part of her school a little while back got kicked out of the group chat. These kids were being super mean. to were kicked out, and Kyra read it because it was on her phone, and she said, Rose, this is not okay. It's something You need to go tell the teachers you need to do something. And I love Rose because she does things that I would never do. She's just braver and bolder and the Holy Spirit's just in her and moving her and doing things that I just is my weakness and is her strength. She just got on that phone and put that girl right back on that text chain and said, bye. (laughs) I was so proud of her because she moved towards the conflict. She moved towards the fray. She moved towards... The, the needy, the broken, those that are being attacked to become an advocate, and how much good would that do in your life as a victim or as a voiceless person? if somebody were moving to be a voice for you, how much more of a voice could you be for somebody else this week? to move towards it, to move towards the conflict, to move towards the need, to become an advocate, to give voice to the voiceless. So this is our my neighbor challenge. y'all, got, y'all ready? Give me a big woohoo if you're ready. You guys have heard of the, uh, the in my feelings challenge, right? so um, From now until Christmas, I got a challenge for you. And I don't want you to put it on on Twitter because uh, the left hand can't know what the right hand is doing. Somebody said that before. But um, my challenge for you this week, I read a great book that David Walker here uh, 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 recommended that I read called The Art of Neighboring. And if you're interested in the subject, you can pick it up. I read it. It was a brief read, but it was really great. He said the average American doesn't know who's next to him. And we like the idea of like random acts of kindness because we can turn it off and on. But when it's the circle around our neighborhood, it never turns off and on. And that's when neighboring moves in to stay, not just to visit. Neighboring is not just a moment. It's an, it's, it's an ongoing inhabitation next to somebody. It's a good news message that when people of the good news of the gospel bring, bring their presence, they're also bringing good news with them. And so this is the simple challenge. This is all I'm asking you to do from now until Christmas. Literally, you could, the guy has a napkin on his book, and he draws the four houses around him, and he says, most Americans, even in church, don't know who they are. They just don't know who they are. And we have random acts of kindness, and maybe we're big tippers, and maybe there's ways that we can be kind to those that we meet just kind of in passing, but I think God might draw a circle around our habitat and our area and say, this is your neighborhood. No, there isn't what's yours and yours and what's mine is nine. The number one place you can be in the classroom of neighboring is to love the person literally that's your neighbor. And oftentimes when we, he says in the book, it's a great quote, when we aim for everything, we, we hit nothing. It's like we're not accountable. We're not We're not actually like accountable to the call of neighboring, but but this is, I think, the invitation for the person next door to you at the mailbox. What would happen if the 120 people that are in this room asked this question over the holidays? What is my neighbor's name? Do you know your neighbor's first and last name? Do you know their kids' names? Do you pray for your neighbors? Do I pray for my neighbors? What are the stories, something deeper and more meaningful other than he works at GE? What is the story of my neighbor? And lastly, underneath that story, I know the Holy Spirit loves it and wants it more than you, is going to grace you to know the need of your neighbor. And neighboring doesn't happen when we move in next to each other. Neighboring only starts when needs are met. This is what Jesus says when he defines a neighbor. Neighbors are where mercy is present. Is there mercy present? Is there a need being met? Is there some way that you're saying, no, it's not what's yours is mine or what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine. What's mine is yours. What's mine is yours because what Jesus is for free is mine now. What's mine is yours. I don't, I, I'm obligated to, to give what I've received. I've been a recipient of great mercy. And so I am a steward and a deliverer of great mercy everywhere I go. I am a neighbor everywhere I am. So what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. There's more than enough because what is mine is yours. And we don't love so that somebody would become a Christian. We love because we're Christians, because it's our identity. It's who we are. It it buys into the very paradigm and framework of everything that God is to us. There's more than enough, so what's mine is yours. Let's stand as we respond in worship. Jesus, we bless our neighbors with good news and hope in the gospel. There is hopelessness and brokenness all around us because of a lie. But the very truth and light of the gospel is that good news is here and it's here to stay. And so we proclaim, we live and we preach the good news of the gospel and we never, ever run out. What's ours is theirs. What's ours is is theirs. What belongs to us, what you have given us, we give away freely because we are recipients of great grace. We are distributors of great grace. We love you, we seek you, and it's a joy to be in your kingdom. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.